readings on contemporary, uh, particularly in the US and Israel, uh, legal definitions of torture and some of their applications, it's interesting that that reading ties in with the discussion we ended up with last time that I want to follow up on <coughs> in discussing uh, the code-based law for our moot court. In particular, I want to talk about the necessity defense and the duress defense. I don't see a magic marker, but necessity and duress, which are listed um, uh, in, discussed in page 140 uh, to 155 in the reading, which was assigned for last class, and I'm going to follow up with this class. Oh, thank you. Okay, appreciate that. So uh, these two defenses, duress and necessity, are, are quite similar. Uh, and I'll explain the distinction, but the point is that there is in law, in the civil law countries, but not, at least until recently, in the common law countries, an exception, even if you meet the material, contextual, and mental elements of a crime. If you can claim self-defense or necessity, you can be excluded from criminal responsibility in civil law countries. And in the International Criminal Court statute, you can get excluded in Article 31. Uh, and there are four grounds, necessity, defense, also intoxication, and being a minor. But I want to discuss these defense because it ties in with torture so clearly. First of all, what is a necessity or a duress defense? Um, for the time being, let's just consider them synonymous. In the International Criminal Court statute, it would be a situation where it was the only alternative was to commit a crime in order to basically survive. Uh, and the grounds would either be bodily harm or your life. And of course, for starters, you have to say, you have to show if you're a defendant, um, in this case, the burden of proof, I guess, would be on you, that you really had to commit the crime uh, to do so. Now, in uh, most criminal justice systems and in international law, self-defense is a perfectly legitimate, uh, lawful form uh, of killing. It's lawful killing, self-defense. And that's not analogous, because in that case, you're not committing a crime if you're, you're actually killing somebody who's about, just about to kill you, and you just pull your gun out of your wallet much faster while they're not paying attention, or whatever the facts might be. Um, but I can imagine there are situations where in the civil law countries on the continent of Europe and their colony, ex-colonies, post-colonies, in, in, say, in French West Africa, uh, there would be a situation where you, know, you pulled the gun, the other person pulled a gun, uh, they fired first, they didn't have any bullets, the bullets didn't go off, and then you just shot to kill. You know, a jury might or a judge might say, well, the person's gun wasn't working, you didn't have to kill him. But you could also say, eh, not really sure. You never know whether a gun's going to go off or not. Uh, and besides, you know, if you're alone, you, 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 it's just you against the other person. If you've got four or five other people, maybe the four or five of you can jump on the person. This happened, by the way, um, I don't know if any of you followed this, University of Alabama Hunts, Huntsville professor who murdered three of her colleagues and uh, wounded, I don't know exactly, three or four others. 
uh, it's a very strange story. I mean, it strikes home because, of course, you know, I, I have to make tenure decisions with my colleagues. And her motive apparently was that she was denied tenure, even though she had a pretty good publication record. But, you know, teaching counts, and apparently she wasn't a very good teacher. People didn't like her. Well, it turns out that she may have actually at least assaulted her brother when the gun went off accidentally when he was 20, as a minimum, since they don't have the evidence. Turns out that she may have sent a pipe bomb to an, a colleague at a hospital in Boston that didn't go off, perhaps accidentally. Um, and there are other suspicious things, like right after she killed her brother, whether it was murder or assault is another question, then she took the gun to a car dealership and waved the gun at the person and said, give me a car, I need to get a car. And none of this was in her file when she applied for the job because she was never even arrested, let alone charged. Um, you know, it, it's an unfair fact of life that in the United States, you know, if you're an ex-con and you've done your time, you're still, that doesn't get, mean that employers have to ignore it when they consider you for a job. And you know, if, you've, if you've been a sentenced to a uh, prison sentence, it's really hard to get a job. That's one of the very negative consequences aside from disrupting families while someone's in prison, but when you send someone to prison for multiple sentences, you're also saying, you probably are not going to have a decent life, which is also maybe an explanation for high recidivism. Because instead of the, the theory that you, know, you go to prison, you get trained uh, to be a criminal in prison, or you don't get any rehabilitation, um, there is the argument that you know you went to prison and you didn't want to go back to crime, but nobody would hire you because you're an ex-con. And maybe even more unfair is the fact that if you are arrested, but they don't press charges, or it goes to trial and you're found not guilty, your arrest record is on your employment record. And they can use that against you even though you were found not guilty or, or not even tried. The fact that you were arrested uh, for a serious charge is allowed to be held against you uh, in your criminal record. And so uh, in this you know, particular example of the woman uh, in Alabama, and I'm trying to remember why I brought this up, aside from the fact that it's you know, on my mind, um, I, we are discussing necessity. And, and you know, obviously, can anyone remind me what, why I would come up with this example? Sorry? Self-defense. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, so, that, thank you. <laughs> um, what happened was when she was shooting in the room, she was gonna shoot everyone in the room. And, and this woman went up to her and said, think of, think, I used to be your friend, I used to talk with you, think of my granddaughter, think of my daughter. And she just turned to her and went like this and the gun miss didn't fire. And so, I mean, she would have finished off everyone in the room. I mean, this person was really crazy. And, you know, I, you know, 99.9% of university life, you know, proceeds without any crime, let alone a violent crime. Um, when one happens like this, you know, it, it makes you wonder. Anyway, uh, so in common law, I had read, uh, particularly in our, our best way reading, best way uh, photocopy shop reading, you know, the common law countries don't have a necessity exemption even if you've been convicted, or a duress uh, exemption. And the civil law countries do. But then, 
Um, in the reading on the first chapter on the Chavez case, Chavez versus Martinez, um, there, it's one of these Supreme Court, one of these court decisions <laughs> where, uh, you know, the vote can be a majority vote, but the, you get different written opinions, and so you get different explanations for the majority opinion. So you don't have a majority opinion as to why, in this case, torture or cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment was permitted in the United States. So all we have then is not a change in the law. Torture is still illegal. Cruelty, as under the US Constitution, is illegal. But we uh, have a decision which says it was legal in that particular instance. And three of the seven of the nine US judge, Supreme Court justices argued a necessity defense, which is, in this case, it was involving police. The police were interrogating the defendant. Defendant resisted. So they beat up the defendant pretty badly and had wounds. And of course, torture, as it's conventionally defined in the torture convention, states that you know, for interrogation purposes, for punishment purposes, or any other humiliation or desire to degrade the person or to show that you're superior, uh, this is unconstitutional as well as illegal activity. But so we have a, a creeping into the US law on the torture matter under the Chavez case of at least three of the majority, of, three in the majority, but not the full majority, saying there is such a situation where, uh, in this case, if the police really need to find out information from the defendant, uh, they might be able to rough up the person. And we'll talk about that case and, and other issues about torture. But it does show you that even common law, at least as practiced in the United States, is moving in the direction of civil law. Now, why does the civil law have this defense? Um, there are probably historical reasons as well as logical reasons. The historical reasons, I think, result from the fact that uh, the continent of Europe had more autocratic history. They didn't have the Magna Carta in 1215. They didn't have uh, gradual evolution of democracy. Democracy and liberal rights emerge suddenly in European history. In the continent, uh, the notion of human rights reached France in 1789 with the first of the several declarations. Uh, Germany didn't have uh, individual rights till late in the 19th century. Um, Human rights, as we conventionally understand them, was only invented to the rest of the world in 1945, perhaps arguably for minority rights after the Versailles Treaty after World War I. But for most of the world, human rights was put on paper in 1945, was resolved in the General Assembly in 1948, and didn't reach treaty status in a systematic way until the two international covenants, which were promulgated in 19. Uh, 66 and took effect in 1976. In other words, it's a recent phenomenon. So one explanation historically is the necessity defense was used by autocrats, rulers, to justify their crimes because they said they needed to. And in particular, there's an expression in French history called raison d'etat, a reason of state. For any of you who knows, anyone know French? No one studies French anymore, right? Good job. Um, reason of state. In other words, uh, this was the argument given by rulers uh, when 
wars of religion tended to end after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. And it was much more a question of nation states pursuing their national interests, allying with other countries regardless of their religion. So whereas the War of Religion, particularly that broke up the Holy Roman Empire in the Thirty Years' War in Germany that led to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, created nation states for the first time, as opposed to empires <coughs> ruled by monarchs, these states started saying, for reasons of state, we will do the following, including allying Catholic France with the Protestant states of Germany against the Catholic states of Germany. And Germany had many states, what we call Germany. Uh, in the hundreds, several centuries ago, um, and I guess today we have two if you count Austria, but you know, up to the 20th century, the question of how many Germanys there will, there will be in the world was always one that uh, world politics faced. So the continent has a different history, a different notion of rights. It began in France, didn't really reach to Central Europe until uh, about 100 years ago, and the rest of the world only 60 or 70 years ago. Whereas England, 1215 is the Magna Carta, which began the notion of presumption of innocence and habeas corpus. Habeas corpus, literally in Latin, show me the body, which is the way of saying, show me the prisoner and why the prisoner is detained. Give me a reason. Typically, that reason had to be a criminal charge. Uh, and the criminal charge had to be reasonable. So we're talking about now eight centuries, five years short of eight centuries, of Anglo-American common law derived from the Magna Carta in which rights against the king already began. Whereas 600 years later in the continent of Europe, the king could still do whatever he wanted. The uh, president of Gabon, who just died a year ago, Bonga, I think his name was, um, was asked in an interview, are you a billionaire? And Bonga, I think, set the record for the longest serving ruler. It's, it's sort of a race between Kim Il-sung of North Korea, Fidel Castro of Cuba, uh, Kenneth Kaund of Zambia was in for a long time. I don't know Bonga's full name. Uh, but anyway, he was in for a very long time uh, in the early 1960s until about last year, the year before when he died. And that's a good 45 years. I don't know, Castro, I guess, will will break that record because he's been in, Castro resigned two years ago for health reasons. So Castro was in from 60 to 2008. So that's 48. So I, I think Fidel may have the record, uh, at least in contemporary states. Uh, but they asked Bongo, are you a billionaire? And his answer was, uh, when the French king built Versailles, did he build Versailles? This is the great palace that you've probably heard of uh, outside of Paris. It's just unbelievably grand, obscenely expensive, particularly at a time uh, when French farmers were starving and then you know, demanding their rights. And his says, was the French, uh, did the French Louis, several Louis, the 14th, 15th, and 16th, build it? Uh, did they build it with their personal funds or with the funds of the French state? Because basically it was a palace for the kings. And it would, you know. In contemporary life, in the 20th century, for Bongo to basically admit that he's a billionaire 
which means he can only become a billionaire by stealing, beginning with stealing foreign aid from us and others, but also from the viewpoint of stealing from his own people and other forms of corruption. For him to say that would be to suggest, well, l'état c'est moi, the state is me. That's what King Louis said at the same period in France. I'm the state, the state is me. Uh, there's no <coughs> distinction. If I spend money on myself, that's spending it on the French state. I don't have to explain myself historically. In England, of course, over time, you know, the French kings spent the, the national funds on themselves. Uh, they were, by contemporary standards, very corrupt. But at least you had a process beginning where the, the king's power wasn't absolute. In the continent of Europe, these were absolutist monarchies, as they were called. Absolutist in the same way we call Soviet communism totalitarian. It wasn't literally totalitarian. It's not like you were being watched 24-7, but they were watching. And they had an official ideology that you had to support. You couldn't just keep your mouth shut. You actually had to go out and support it. And these absolutist monarchs were absolutist, not in the sense of having completely absolute power, because they didn't have everything on resource at their disposal, but they were absolutist in the sense of whatever they wanted to do, they could do. Uh, and if they decided to do something that people objected to, they're likely to win. They may not win every battle, but they're likely to win every battle. In other words, there are historical reasons for being very suspicious of duress and necessity defenses, because they're designed primarily for rulers to get away with things that they want to do. And for individuals, common law countries, you can't claim necessity, I think, in any situation. In, in this the Chavez decision, which I said didn't create a new precedent because there was no majority, was only concerned with agents of the state, in this case, the police force. But you can't say, you know, self-defense, real self-defense is not criminal. But, you know, the person is subdued and you just shoot them dead because you felt you were a necessity, it's not your subjective test on what you were thinking. It's what the reasonable person would say was nece necessary under the circumstances. Now, the necessity defense and the related defense of duress, which has to do with the resources, uh, duress has more to do with individuals' lives, and necessity has more to do with the country's resources. But for your purposes, it's, it's just don't worry about the distinction. Um, <coughs> It, just because even a reasonable person would conclude, A, that it was necessary, and not just that you thought it was necessary, um, which is an important distinction. That's the distinction between an objective test and a subjective test, right? The objective test is what an outsider, what they used to say before gender consciousness In all the old court cases from 200 and 300 years ago, it's what is the re what would the reasonable man say? Say reasonable person now. Um, the test of reasonableness is objective, even though it's subjective because you're asking people their opinion. In that sense, it's subjective. But from the point of view of a legal test, it's objective because it's not what the person, the defendant thought. It's what an outside person, whether it's the judge or the jury, would think would be reasonable in the circumstances. Whereas the subject is the mental state of the person. So 
So the first point is that duress and necessity has to be reasonable. Um, reasonable with respect to what is the question. Um, if you read the torture convention, as the chapter discusses, there's absolutely no reasonable use of torture. On the other hand, it's the convention against torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. There is a necessity defense by implication for cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, which raises the question in the chapter, what is the definition of CID? It's the Convention Against Torture is the, the, full, the name of the, of, of the convention, the treaty, but the full name is the Con Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, sometimes shortened to CID or CIDTP. Convention Cruel, Inhuman, Degrading Treatment or Punishment. And there is not in the treaty an absolute prohibition of, against that. All the state parties, that's the term for states, that is countries that, who are parties to the treaty, that is they've ratified the treaty, must pledge themselves to reduce and discourage cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment. Which the author says leaves open the door to saying, if it's not absolutely prohibited by torture, then the framers obviously were implying that there might be circumstances when whatever that is, it is permitted. Let me hold up and further in discussing this and continue with the moot court analysis. So the argument of necessity and duress would be a situation where either under Article 7 or Article 8, Article 7 for crimes against humanity, Article 8 for war crimes, you found that the contextual, material, and finally the mental element in Article 30 were all satisfied. Now that three-pronged test is hard to meet. But even still, the ICC and civil law countries in their domestic criminal law will say, particularly with respect to the state, even if you meet the contextual element, which for crimes against humanity, again, was widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population. And I said, you know, chemical weapons, uh, the facts of that case were that they used it against an invading army. Would you construe that chemical weapons against an army was also amount to an attack on civilians because they're chemical weapons and they harm civilians? In war crimes, it's armed conflict. That would apply in the moot court. The material elements we'll talk about in depth uh, in future classes, but Clearly, there is a war crime for treacherous use of weapons. So the most obvious case of all the counts that we're going to have in our moot court would be using weapons with treachery. Because clearly, chemical weapons violate the Chemical Weapons Convention. The president may not know that his country had ratified the Chemical Weapons Convention in our, in our little moot court. But you know, it's clearly treachery, and you, you could argue, the prosecution will argue, you have an obligation to know what your country has ratified. You've got to have advisors that know what your country has ratified, and therefore that's treachery. So that's going to be the case where the defense is going to say, have the hardest time. The defense is going to have the easiest time on crimes against humanity because they can claim there was neither a widespread 
systematic attack on civilians, and they can argue that the mental element, uh, in this particular case, the president did not intend to kill his own people. But let's say we, it's treachery, and all three are met there. All three criteria are met. The person is going to be found guilty. Then the defense in our moot court is going to argue necessity and defense. So the first thing the defense is going to have to say is that it was a reasonable use of chemical weapons. For, for that, they're going to have to argue that it was a last resort, that they couldn't stop the invading army using conventional weapons and conventional forces, that they were outmatched. It was an illegal evasion. As an illegal invasion, uh, you are allowed under the ICC statute, if it's reasonable, to, to commit crimes. In this case, the war crime of treachery. Now, you have to, the, the prosecution will say it's unreasonable always to use chemical weapons. And the Chemical Weapons Convention bans them always in the same way that the Torture Convention bans torture. Always. And since there's never been a case in, in, in a real court, you know, arguing both sides are perfectly reasonable and reasonable people can disagree and that's why these moot courts are supposed to be fun. So one question is, it, is it reasonable? The second criterion is, is it meet the laws of war, which begin with the notion of proportionality. And this is where your witnesses are going to play a key role. Proportional means that essentially that the military objective, which in this case would be to halt the invading army, um, was the force that you use was the minimum, or at least certainly was not the maximum, much closer to the minimum, because you never know exactly in reality what is the minimum, but use the amount of force that was necessary to achieve the military objective and no more. And the harm to civilians would also be collateral damage that's, that's unavoidable. Civilian collateral damage is permissible but both of these have the criterion of minimal harm not maximum harm. It is illegal to kill five times as many soldiers as you need to to, to have a victory. That's just cruel and, and punishment. I mean, obviously, if they surrender, you can't kill them. Um, but e even if you're just involved in combat and the war is not over, you still have a situation where you want to uh, discourage excessive brutality. So if you're going to use chemical weapons, you're going to have to argue that you only use enough chemical weapons to stop the invading army, and you only cause harm to civilian in your own country that was the minimum and was unintentional. Now, I'd like to open up to a little debate, since you may or may not have ever thought about this. Uh, we don't have in the United States yet, even for our, our, our torture practices of our government, but just in routine police practices or even in private individuals, this defense, which is not a defense against the crime, but an explanation for the crime, to absolve you from guilt. Or at least absolve you guilty but not punished might be a way you might translate it. Do you think that's something we need? 
Or should they have our standard and just have absolute prohibitions? And when you think about what you'd want to say about this particular issue, you might want to consider the, the possibility that we have some sometimes rather perverse formulations in the United States. In the civil law countries, you must prosecute every crime. There is no prosecutorial discretion. If, you find, if, if you're a prosecutor in the continent of Europe in a civil law country, or its equivalent in French West Africa, and you find probable cause, you must prosecute the person. In the common law countries, it's up to you. Prosecutor doesn't have to even give a reason. It's in the interest of morality or justice. Um, it's quite possible that in the case of this professor at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, uh, Amy, whatever her name was, um, that when her mother said to the police officer in Braintree, Massachusetts, it was an accident, the gun went off against her, her you know, and killed her son, that the prosecutor just decided, the in this case it would be police discretion, the police just said, well, if the mother doesn't want to prosecute, why should we put... The family has suffered enough, right? Maybe, maybe your daughter committed a crime of assault. Or maybe, in her own mind, she's thinking, maybe she even accidentally killed him as manslaughter. Or even worse, maybe she just killed him. But, you know, the police said the mother decided we're not going to pursue She didn't want to pursue it. The mother doesn't want to pursue it. She's the only eyewitness. She's the one who's going to have to go on the stand and, and convict her daughter. Let's just let it go. And maybe the police decided, you know, let's not even go, any, go down that road. You know, the, the police might have decided, let's arrest her, let's have an investigation, and leave it to the prosecutor to decide whether to submit to a grand jury or not. And then the grand jury can decide whether to indict, although the tendency is, as they say, grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Uh, generally, grand juries get, sit in a room and indict many cases all day long. There's no defense present, and so forth. But the, the police probably said, look, if the mother isn't, isn't going to be a cooperative witness, and she's the only witness, why bother? Well, the answer might be, well, someday she may go and murder her colleagues at a university. Of course, most of the time, that sort of thing never happens. A second kind of perversity that we, you could say we have in our common law system, when you have so much more discretion, and then their perversity is they, 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 they excuse crimes. That seems bizarre. That seems like a dilemma. Our dilemma is we have formulations which would say either the prosecutor is not going, prosecutor is not going forward, the police is not going forward, quote unquote, in the interest of justice, when normally we define justice as following the rules and procedures that apply to everyone equally. Well, of course, we don't actually do that because we have discretion in sentencing. And that's often done in the interest of justice. First and foremost, you know, is it your first offense or your third offense? But we also know that there are racial implications, not only between blacks and whites, between dark-skinned blacks and lighter-skinned blacks. Darker-skinned black people get the longest sentences. Just, you know, that's one of these things that happens. Um, police line, all these kinds of racial implications happen because of our common law system. In a civil law system, much more uh, sense of treating likes alike. You know, the crime gets the sentence, not the, the sentence is based on the individual 
and taking into consideration, consideration extenuating circumstances. Yes? A couple but days ago. The, the, it happened Friday, I think. The officers in Massachusetts, did they come under fire for not investigating the brother's death? Well, there was criticism about it and questions <laughs> raised. Uh, in yes, today's newspaper yesterday said that yesterday the Braintree Police Department said um, we probably they probably should have charged her with assault. And which would include the use of an illegal weapon that was loaded. Um, but you know, as far as manslaughter or murder, which is really what, you know, they, they probably didn't even think about it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, clearly if you got an illegal gun and somebody's killed, you probably ought to be charged for having a loaded weapon, even if it was a complete accident. Uh, and they admitted this because obviously, in retrospect, that's what they did. It happens that the mother was also, I guess in Massachusetts they have kind of like Greek-style democracy, so the city council has 120 or 200 people on it, so it's not called a city council. And she was one of those 125, whatever the number is, people. And, you know, perhaps that weighed in their mind. Why? Because sometimes it's, 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 not an, it's to your disadvantage to be a celebrity or a politician because you get singled out, but sometimes it's an advantage. You know, people just figure, oh, that person's doing good for the community, or that person may get even with us someday, or what have you. Yeah. Just to follow up, I think just as agents of the law, we should be looking out for the victim, not for, you know, the mother. Or we're supposed to be. Oh, the victim? Yeah, the victim isn't the man, her brother that got killed. I think we should be the one that is in the minds of these police officers. Right, but are you saying that the brother would necessarily wanted her sister to go to prison? Maybe he forgave, he would forgive her because she's a family member. Well, we don't know because they're but, but you're, know. You're, I'm just saying that if I accept what you say, which is a compelling argument, mm -hmm. that we should empathize with the victim, do all victims always want to prosecute? I mean, there are people who take Christian forgiveness literally right. and apply it to public standards. Others say, Religious and private morality should be in a different sphere from public morality. Uh, we don't know what the relationship that they had, you know, the sister and the mother. We, we don't know what's happening. Well, I mean, maybe had. maybe somebody knows, but I certainly don't know. Right, and I feel like there should have been some sort of investigation. Just yeah. well, there was a small investigation. Right. Uh, it just didn't go any further. I think it was dropped because the mother said it was an accident. She was the witness. So. Basically, what you're saying is that, except for the assault charge, which they didn't bring, they the mother's a liar. Manslaughter, manslaughter, some something else. I think that's just minimal. You know, the, the well, I don't know the law of manslaughter well enough to say that accidentally, let a, you know, a gun exploding in a room is manslaughter. I don't really know. Anyone know? It's, it's voluntary, involuntary. That, that's also a crime. Correct. It, it's still a crime, but it's, you have voluntary manslaughter when you, you're not allowed to have a firearm, yet you're, you have a firearm in your possession, you're cleaning it, and it goes off. That's voluntary manslaughter because you're, you're committing a, a criminal act in the first place, 
and that that criminal act ne didn't necessarily lead up to you know the, the killing of somebody else, but you shouldn't have had the gun in the first place. So now you're culpable. In any event, you know. It's a very bizarre story, just beginning with the murder itself, but also all of these other things are coming out. Isn't it always unethical to not thoroughly investigate an unnatural death? I mean, the, the person died from some unnatural means, right? This guy was shot. Uh, isn't it unethical I to think, not I think you're right about that. I, I mean, uh, how, well, part of it depends on how you define investigation, how thorough do you want to go with it. I, I don't know from the news accounts how much they investigated. They obviously interviewed the mother. Um, I don't know if anyone else was there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th I think there is an obligation, particularly in a country like ours, where we believe in equality of justice, at least to, a, to do a police investigation. Um, you know, how far you go with it? Do you do ballistics tests to see whether it was really an accident or not, or you just rely on the mother? Knowing that we have a trial by jury, and if you're a defendant, you're going to ask for a jury typically. Uh, and if the witness, the, the witness is now the police could say, she's we'll put her on the stand and she'll tell the truth, even though. But if she's telling the police it was an accident, if she reverses herself, then she's committed a crime of, of deceiving the police. But you'd have to be pretty Machiavellian, and very clairvoyant to think, okay, I think she's not telling me the truth. We're going to swear to testimonies to make her tell the truth. And if she tells the truth, then if we want to, we can prosecute her for telling us a different story, lying to the police, which is, I know you, can, you can't lie to an FBI agent, so I assume you can't lie to the police either. Yes. If the punishment is not as much as for perjury under sworn testimony, but I think it's still, in most states, a crime to even to lie to the police investigating such a thing. Something like during a police investigation or something like that. Obstruction yeah. of justice. I think the biggest thing is that there's no point for them to even try to convict her own mother and the victim's mother is saying that it was an accident. No jury's going to convict the victor then if the victim's mother is saying that she was there and it was an accident. I mean, and, you know, even though that no matter what the, the detectives, no matter what the police are able to find out, if they're not going to convict, they're not going to waste the money to try them. You know, unless they see a, the chance of getting a conviction, because not only do they waste a bunch of taxpayer dollars, but also then you have the opportunity of the person being proven not guilty. Instead of at this point, it's not known. There's, you know, if, if you're not proven, if, if it's not decided, is a lot worse than you being proven not guilty in a court of law, you know? Is there somebody else? Um, it, it, yeah. I was just going to say, what, what, what does that mean whenever she says, um, you know, that you need to prosecute for the brother because the brother's dead. I mean, he doesn't care. I mean, I mean so you, you have a voice for the victim, is what I'm saying. You know? Well, for future so it's like victims, community, you know, like you justice. A, I think what she's, you might be saying is it's a precedent for future situations. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you want to send a signal that this is what one consequence. So for deterrent reasons, mm -hmm. but you're also thinking in terms of solidarity and punishment, right. which is that... Um, while you're alive, even though let's assume you you don't have any consciousness once you're dead, because mm -hmm. uh, you know until you're dead you don't know for sure. Um, but let's assume there's no consciousness. Nevertheless, while you're alive, if you're worried about such things, you would want to know that your society would take your views into consideration once you're gone. I mean, it's kind of like a will, right? You you will your assets to your heirs or to whoever you want to name. Mm -hmm. uh, 
we don't know whether you feel any you feel good about it in your spirit after you die or whether you, there is no spirit I mean from a science point of view as opposed to a religious point of view yeah you have no idea um, or what that consciousness means but you know mm -hmm. we still worry about these things because while you're alive you want to have the feeling that your heirs are going to get the property that you're going to give so I think as a matter matter of principle, these things are correct, but you know, there are a lot of considerations weighing in at the same time. Like the cost. Like the mother's feelings. And it could just come down to, this mother's suffered enough. Mm -hmm. She's lost her son. And worse, what's worse, having a, let's assume she, she knew her daughter did it. What would be worse for her? Having to come out publicly and testify against her daughter that she murdered her son? It'd be easier probably for her if some stranger went out and murdered her son. No. Right. Even the prosecution, them, them not wanting to take the case of the fact of, you know, if, if they see it as being a law, you know, they're going to lose, they're not going to want to charge her because they don't want, you know, you know, that on their record that they lost that case, you know. Well, that's also tactical. They might consider their reputation for yeah. losing cases. DA is an elected position exactly. in most states. And, you know, that... Voters, if, if they remember anything, they'll remember the one case, not your entire record. I think it's bizarre that we're talking about some sort of utilitarian view of justice. Um, do you want your that justice... That is the number one view you, of justice. Well, one but view. do you want your justice to be efficient, or do you want to achieve the end of being just? Like, if it's, if it's inefficient to charge this person, but they get away with the crime, is that justice? Well, first of all, we have two conceptions of justice that we've talked about in this class, right? There's the utilitarian, which is a very common one, which says that individual rights can be sacrificed for the greater good. And then there's the Kantian view that says that there are certain things you cannot do no matter what, even if the, the rest of the world benefits enormously. And of course, you know, in reality, the way most justice systems is a combination of the two. You have some yeah. rights, but occasionally, if it's necessary, they'll quash your rights, at least in the continent of Europe. And it's interesting that the common law countries have come up with a different formulation. Yeah. Um, well, I think that it's not necessarily just efficiency of spending the money. I think it's also, for one, like you said, if you're proven not guilty, then they can never try you again. Yeah. So right now, they don't have the evidence to prove that she was guilty. Why would they prove her not guilty? And when, when they could just wait till one day, they might have the evidence. As well as the fact that we have, to go back to the original point, prosecutorial, prosecutorial um, judgment. They don't have to try every case because of that fact, because you can't prove every case, even though you might know a crime was committed. There might be, there might be things that bar that situation. And that's why, in that respect, I do think that that is an advantage that the common law countries have over the civil law countries, and that you, we, they, um, the prosecutors has that advantage of not having to prove, of not having to take a case to trial, they know they're gonna lose. And I think that if they're thinking about things like what the mother would want, or other things like that. I think that's a mistake. That's when they're using it in the wrong sense, because like we see in this case, the lady ended up killing someone else later on down the road. But in the sense that if they had taken her to trial and they knew that she would be proven not guilty, they definitely shouldn't have to take her to trial. But like you said, even if, you're proven, even if you're proven not guilty, you, it's still on your record that you were charged with this crime and people might still not give you that job or not. So she might even not have been in that situation even if they still proved her not guilty. Okay, but if they proved her not guilty, then what 
what happens in the situation where someone comes for a new witness comes forward and they ha- and they have a new testimony that can prove her guilty, but they can't try that woman again because she's been proven not guilty. This police investigation said, like you said, the only witness was the mother, so they had to go on the testimony. Beyond of the mother. situation, though. Beyond this situation. Yeah. Oh, in another situation that makes sense, but I'm talking about this specific situation. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask counsel what what your reason for saying is. Better that they don't have to pursue it. I mean, in Europe, they would have pursued it, and they may have decided we can't. We don't have probable cause. Investigations aren't I mean, always. Remember, it, you you only have to proceed if you find probable cause. But on the basis of the, the mother's statement, there was no probable cause. So in this sense, the two systems would have treated that case in Brain could have treated that case in Braintree, Massachusetts, the same. Well, simply because probable cause does not determine guilt. If you have probable cause, you don't know that person's guilty. As a prosecutor, bring a case to trial. I believe you should know that person is guilty. You should have the evidence to prove that person's guilty. So, in a situation which is beyond this in, in, instance, when, when a prosecutor brings a case to trial because they have probable cause, or brings the investigation forward because they merely have probable cause, to the point where they can't go back, then they are leaving out the, the possibility of new evidence coming forward after the not guilty verdict has come back. So that way, a person who's committed a crime and then the, invest- and then the investigation happens before all the evidence b- could be amassed, but they bring it to trial anyway, that person's gonna be found not guilty and then never be able to be tried again for that crime. Right, but with statutes of limitations, most crimes, you know, you have an investigation most situations you don't get new evidence later. I also think that you can, if you have new evidence, I'm not exactly sure of this, but I think if there's some new incriminating evidence that's like a slam dunk, <coughs> I don't think that violates double jeopardy. It doesn't. If there's ever new evidence that wasn't originally introduced at trial, even if they had the evidence but it wasn't introduced at trial, they can retry it. Okay. Yeah, double jeopardy is not allowed. Double jeopardy, I think, would be you know, you just try them twice. Yeah, with the same you, facts. The same facts. That, yeah, exactly. Um, there's a third formulation that could let us think about this necessity defense of common law countries, uh, and that is that we have a formulation in our country where, and it pertains to torture a lot, but lots of state actions that are considered, that, that raise the dilemma of the dirty hands that Michael Walzer's article talks about, which is, you're doing something that's conventionally immoral and criminal. It's ne- necessary to do the greater good for the greatest number of people, like going to war, for example. Uh, killing normally is not uh, permitted, including intentional killing, which is murder. But in war, it's legal killing because you've declared war, and you assume that the situation is a war that's justified. Um, but we have you know, situations on the margin in international politics, such as uh, humanitarian intervention, where you attack another country and remove their government because that government is slaughtering its own people. Under the current rules, if the Security Council of the United Nations has not authorized that invasion to save lives, your country has violated um, the laws of, of international relations, which says you cannot attack another country. That's a formulation in international politics which is termed illegal but legitimate. And we have a similar analogous formulation in our common law countries where uh, 
like take, take torture, where an individual is deemed uh, in cases, and this was essentially the Israeli court decision that we're reading and just going to discuss later on. Um, and by implications, the Shabbos plurality, not the, not the majority, but it's not a minority view either, because it was on the winning side, uh, but the three votes on the court basically came up with the formulation of illegal but legitimate. So while we don't have necessity and duress, by allowing prosecutors or judges or juries essentially to ignore the facts and the law, we get these formulations. So jury nullification, we've talked about that. Anyone remember what that is? What is jury nullification? Find a person guilty, or innocent, when they find a person innocent, not guilty. Yeah, regardless of, um, because they're rejecting with the, the law as opposed to believing that the individual didn't do the, the act. Almost, um, but that's the basic idea. It's when a jury or a judge, for that matter, if he's deciding the case without a jury, uh, basically chooses to ignore what is obviously a violation of the law. The classic situation is because the jury finds the law to be immoral. So laws about segregation, laws about, uh, you know, there are famous cases of jury nullification where a black defendant broke the law, but the law was something that was, you know, literacy tests for voting. And so they nullified, in effect, the law by finding the, the person not guilty. We also have the presidential pardon in the United States, which basically says you can pardon someone for a crime, whether he's gone to trial or has been convicted and is in prison, um, without, an, without any explanation. Which, you know, you can say quite objectively in retrospect, if you give enough money to the Clinton Library, uh, you can get your ex-husband a pardon and you can come back after two decades in exile. Or there are often pardons where it looks like miscarriages of justice, where the criminal justice system simply failed. That would be presumably a much more appropriate use of the presidential pardon power. But we also have situations where uh, the president pardon, in the case of, uh, was it Ger well, Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, I think for the sake of putting Watergate behind us. And I forget which president, but it, it may have been Reagan, forgave Cap, uh, pardoned Cap Weinberger, Secretary of Defense, and a couple of those who were convicted. I don't think Oliver North got pardoned, but uh, Admiral Poindexter was pardoned uh, for the Iran-Contra scandal. And in that case, one could infer that the motive was, I agree with your politics. I agree with your goals. In effect, I agree with the idea that even though you broke the law, the law got in the way of what we needed to do to get the things done, which was basically get the money from the profits of the sell selling of the tow missiles to Iran and taking them to the Contras because the Congress wouldn't give us any more money to fight the Sandinistas who were communists, and that would be a dirty hands problem. Yeah. I don't know Georgia law well enough to give you a precise answer. I assume the principles are the same, that they don't give you much guidance in the Georgia Constitution, just as you have the power to pardon. It might say pardon for the following types of situations. You'll have to read that. 
Were there other questions or comments? Does anyone want to say which standard they would rather have? Would you rather have just have the law always being fixed and leave the discretion to the judges or take the, and the prosecutors or take the discretion from the judges and the prosecutors and leave the necessity defense after the conviction? It's just two ways to approach the problem of you just can't have the law be absolute all the time and you just can't have pure discretion. And it just happens that when you invoke this kind of defense, it's usually the very rare event, but of, of supreme importance to the country. So when you invoke it, it's a, a rule that you, you know, you, the type of rule that you have is going to be very important and will have implications and ramifications on how society deals with it. Yeah. I'd rather uh, have uh, discretion. Because, uh, the way we have common yeah, law. Yeah, just a good, a good mix of the two. Because if you just have absolute, then you're going to have a situation like we have right now where, uh, you know, there's no room for, you know, improvement or whatever. So I'd rather have, like, discretion because sometimes you are going to have those situations. Improvement about? Not improvement, like, now I want to go, go more with the, the mix of the two. Like, just like with how we have now. Because if you... If you have an absolute, then we're going to always have those situations where there's, you know, it's either black or white. Then we have too much discretion. Then we get, you know, leads to too much, like, too much chaos, I guess. So I'd rather have a mix. Well, they're both kind of mixes, and they're just dif different approaches. The question is, do you leave it to the judge in a final verdict to say it was ne necessary, but make the system of justice always go forward? Or do you have the situation like we have in Braintree, Massachusetts, where you take into consideration the mother's feelings or the ability to get a verdict, and you have the consequence that somebody's let go with, with, without a stigma, basically, without a, you know, the, the scarlet letter on her shoulder saying, I killed my brother. I mean, no one at the University of Alabama in Huntsville had any idea that she was involved with all these things using our system, whereas the French system, she would have not gone to prison but it would have been on a record. Is she going to go like, to like a crazy house or something like that? Because doesn't she have a track record for it? Well, only if she was found not guilty by reason of insanity, I assume. Um, in other words, I, I think the French system is a safer system in terms of locking up the most criminals. Because you just, you're going to err on the side of punishing the innocent, where our system is you err on the side of uh, punishing well, a lot of guilty people are going to get are going to get off. And now, in, is it empirically true? I don't know, but that's my sense. Is if you have a rule that you must prosecute, then you're more likely to prosecute Somebody. the guilty than our system, where you leave lots of places where the, the, the cases don't go forward. By the way, you should realize, of course, that in the typical situation, and you investigating a crime. The prosecutor may think everyone's guilty, but you don't necessarily have an understanding of the, of, of the facts. You interview people, and you get different versions of the facts from people who are all present. And you know, the, so so what I'm saying is that the difference between the two approaches may not be as stark and different as we lay it on, because while they must go forward if there's probable cause, as I said earlier uh, to Mr. Counsel. Uh, you wouldn't have gone forward maybe in the Braintree case using a French system because they too must rely on the, French, the version of events of the mother and they could 
they have implicit discretion to say, okay, we agree with the mother. Yeah. I'd say I prefer the French system, but I also wouldn't say that um, I uh, totally agree with this idea of necessity either. I don't, I mean, if you're convicted of a crime, I think if you can use, if the necessity of defense applies to you, then maybe you get a lesser sentence or something, but I don't think you should get off scot-free. Well, that, that is true that we have discretion in the punishment phase, but not on the guilt or innocence phase. So similar to our necessity defense is that we could have the formulation, as one of the early articles on torture pointed out, of saying, okay, you're guilty, sentence suspended. Judge could say that, and in that in that sense, because that option is there, whether the judge admits it was on the basis of necessity or anything else, that's effectively what's happening. Judges don't typically do that. Mm -hmm. They may not even realize they can do it, because you know most of the time they're dealing with all these drug dealers, and what are they going to say? You had to sell the drugs. I mean, a sociologist might say that because he didn't <laughs> have a job, but that's not the way our criminal justice system operates. All right, any other comments? Uh, I just wanted to add that you know this came up recently in the news, similar to the Winter Olympics. Uh, Nancy Kerrigan's brother uh, killed his father. Nancy Kerrigan's was this, this, the, earlier you may know her as Tanya Harding's victim. If you go back and was it was it the, I can't remember early 90s, something like the 94 Olympics I think it was. Uh, her rival, she went and had a thug, was it her brother or just a friend? You couldn't have made this stuff up. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it just, it's Hollywood, could, could, you would never believe it. But you know, she, she's a competitor in the US national skating team and she went and had her competitor beaten up. And uh, Nancy Kerrigan still made the Olympics. I think she got a silver medal, I can't even remember. Anyway, tragedy, her brother, um, got into some quarrel with her father the same way that this professor got in quarrel with her brother and I think asphyxiated him, choked him to death. And the, they talked to the mother, the mother said it was an accident and the police decided that no, we're gonna, we're gonna continue on, last I heard. I, they're not following this case as closely. If it had been 10, 20 years ago, <coughs> in the era of the Winter Olympics, they would have been following it much more closely. But you know, in other words, they, they're taking a somewhat different approach to a somewhat different set of facts. Um, you know, in that case, the father was in poor health. There was some ambiguity as to whether you know, he died of a heart attack due from the, the stressful situation, which would be a tragedy. But you know, it's not necessarily murder. If, you know, and and, and was, it, was it a choke or he just pushed his father away? And what happened? And I don't know if there was witnesses or not. There may not have been witnesses, like anyone following these things. Okay, but you can see how these, these are ambiguous situations. Even when you have a witness, the witness may not be paying close attention. The witness may be hysterical to asking both people to stop or what have you, or the witness is coming in halfway through the events. So what is probable cause? We don't actually know. All right, let's turn to the Israeli decision on, on torture. This was a hugely important decision. Uh, basically, it, it concluded that Israel had been perpetrating torture. It ra raises a lot of the moral issues that were raised in the Osseo article last time as to what is the nature of guilt. 
Um, let's say a couple of words about Osseo's article in this sense, which is that in his article about Argentina, because I gave the presentation on the Argentinian extermination last time, I didn't talk too much about his article. But he's basically saying there are two models. One is Hannah Arendt's model of the banality of evil. That's her famous phrase in discussing Adolf Eichmann, who was the number two person in the, uh, I think it was the SS, uh, of the Nazi extermination machinery. And he was impassive, unemotional, never thought apparently much about his immorality. Um, and you know this was quite surprising because we think of evil people in a Hollywood sense of people who take pleasure in what they do. It seemed that Eichmann didn't take any pleasure or didn't take any unpleasure in planning and administering the Holocaust. He just did it because that was his job. Contrast that with the generals in Argentina where you had leaders who consulted the military vicarate and the priests advised them that the issue was complicated but necessary. It was, uh, these were spiritual advisors in a very Catholic hierarchy that Argentinian constitution calls not only for no separation of church and state and Catholicism is the fundamental religion of the country, but it also says that there is a natural law in addition to the positive law of the country. In other words, there's the law of nature, i.e. the law of God, as interpreted perhaps by the Catholic Church, but in any event, a natural law tradition which would coexist with the positive law in statutes and codes, since they have a code-based system there, which presumably would trump the codes and provide a reason for not convicting. So it's this natural law <coughs> article in the Argentine Constitution which is effectively a necessity argument, according to this line of thinking that we're discussing today, that excused the previous military governments of the crimes against civilians and the innocent that were perpetrated in the various intermittent military dictatorships throughout Argentine history. Now, first of all, this is a very different situation than the banality of evil. These are people who are facing the dilemma of the dirty hands described by Michael Waltz, Waltzer. Uh, they, they, their conscience is clearly, if not bothering them, at least they're having some ethical consider, concerns. They are turning to these priests uh, and asking them for, for their advice. And the priests tell them to go forward. On that basis alone, one might say that uh, they operated on the basis of necessity, at least in their own mind, maybe not from a reasonable person test. Now, one can come up with many distinctions to say that this was not reasonable or fit the criteria of a necessity defense. For one thing, what these people did in this particular dictatorship was much worse, bad enough in the past, but you know they exterminated 30,000 people. And they tortured many, many, many more in addition to torturing those 30,000. They kidnapped these children, etc. all the things we talked about in the last class. Um, second, uh, it's not clear that, you know, lots of questions could be asked about these men as individuals. Were they re were, do they devout Catholics or just occasional Catholics? Did they have a relationship with the priest going back many years? Was, that a re was he the priest or really a trusted advisor or not? What did they tell the priests? 
the priests really know the kinds of things they were doing? Would the priests have said, that's OK? And there's even some question about the law. In the United States, we have uh, religious, I don't know what the precise term is, but just as a lawyer has the uh, right to be confidential, a priest has a right to be confidential in the United States, a religious figure, and does not have to testify in court as to what was said in confidence. And that's a, an exemption. An exemption that goes back in the common law many centuries, six or seven probably, if not more, but the, it's not all that simple, because although you don't have to testify against this person in court, you can't be an accessory to crime either, particularly future crimes. Um, there might be some question as to, you know, you, you're not obligated to turn this person into the police, but if you know this person is going to go and commit more crimes in the future, the priest then um, uh, might be guilty uh, to, for, as an accessory to justice. And um, if they did know all these things, then the, you could say that the, the, the generals and others who consulted them might have a better basis for claiming necessity because they told the full extent of what they were doing, what they were planning to the priests. But on the other hand, the priests would might prefer a plausible denial. He didn't tell me all these things. I didn't know it was that bad. If that's the case, the priest is off the hook a little bit more because he doesn't know the details of what's being done. But on the other hand, uh, that doesn't make it as compelling a case for necessity, because these guys didn't really tell the priest the full extent of the moral dilemma of dirty hands that they may have felt at the time. So in considering Osseo's portrayal of, you know, yes, it's not the banality of evil, it's, it's some, somewhat more, quote unquote, sympathetic. I mean, they didn't. The Holocaust was worse than the extermination in Argentina. And uh, these guys did at least have some moral qualms about what they did. They weren't like Adolf Eichmann, uh, who was just a careerist following orders, similar to the way that Kurt Waldheim, the uh, former Secretary General from Austria of the United Nations, you know, who also apparently was involved in the atrocities committed by the Nazis in uh, fake Macedonia. And he was sort of a career. It's more of this finality of evil model. So our sense of whether to prosecute, whether to use the necessity of defense, whether to mitigate punishment or even suspend punishment depends on these very complex moral balancings and analyses of exactly what was the mind, that is the mental element, of these perpetrators. And in the common law approach, it only comes into consideration on how much you punish. But in the civil law approach and in the ICC statute, it may affect the mental element, but it actually may keep someone from being punished at all because there is the necessity and the duress defense. Now let's look at the Israeli case, which was built on the precedent of the European Commission of Human Rights which held that the British were uh, practicing torture against the Northern Irish uh, Republican Army prisoners and uh, were asked to stop. In the old days, they didn't, now they don't have a commission. They just have a European Court of Human Rights. But in the old days, the commission took the case. And if they found 
a finding, then it would go to the court. It went to the court, and at the court, the court made the distinction between uh, torture and other cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment. And England, like and the United Kingdom, unlike the United States, uh, when it ratified the European Convention of Human Rights, did not say, basically, we're only going to be bound by this treaty, in this case, the Universal Treaty, Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel and Human Degrading Treatment or Punishment, to the extent that the US Constitution already makes this, these acts unconstitutional. And as we said in a prior class, that means cruel and unusual, as opposed to torture and cruel, inhuman, degrading, or degrading treatment or punishment. So something that is merely degrading is a violation of the convention, even though it's not, it's not universally forbidden, in the, as in the case of torture. So when the court case in Britain went forward, the court said, this is not torture. It's only cruel and human or degrading. Something short of torture, something bad, something to be criminal, but not something that you always have to prosecute, or at least if you prosecute it, you might consider a necessity defense. Now, the Israeli case was very good because it banned shaking and all of these other harsh techniques, and they called them torture. But they cited the, the England uh, Northern Irish Republican Army case that got to the European Court of Human Rights in, first of all, making a distinction between torture and these lesser forms of punishment, and secondly, by providing a necessity defense. So if you look on the book, if you have it with you, you can see all the various forms of torture, shaking, the shabak position, which is seated in a, in a small low chair whose seat is tilted forward towards the ground, one hand tied behind the suspect and placed behind the gap between the chair and the seat support, the second hand tied behind the chair against its back support, suspect's head is lowered in an opaque sack falling down to his soldiers, powerfully loud music is played in the room. Suspects are detained in this position for a prolonged period of time, awaiting interrogation at consecutive intervals. And that's just one of the many. There's the frog couch, the excessive tidying of handcuffs, sleep deprivation, etc. All of these were struck down by the Supreme Court as torture, as very severe pain um, for either punishment or interrogation. By the way, uh, the previous author argues that the definition in this treaty is not broad enough. And he says what really amounts to torture are also situations where you have the threat of escalating the punishment. Because we have control over you, we determine your future, and you're going to get it hard from us. Uh, let me just, since we're almost out of time, read you the particulars about the necessity. On page 177, <clears throat> paragraph 33, as noted, an explicit authorization permitting GSS, which would be the state security agency, to employ physical means is not to be found in our law. An authorization of this necessary can, of this nature, can, in the state's opinion, be obtained in specific cases by virtue of the criminal law defense of necessity prescribed in the penal law. The language of the statute is as follows, Article 34, Paragraph 1. A person will not bear criminal liability for committing any act Im immediately necessary for the purpose of saving the life, liberty, body, or property of either himself or his fellow person from 
substantial danger of serious harm imminent from the particular state of things, i.e. circumstances, at the requisite timing and absent alternative means for avoiding the harm. So what Israel does is now bans all these torturous activities, but does provide a procedure for being exempted on the grounds of necessity. And uh, that is defined and has been defined in the law and remains open to being used. Uh, and this defense of necessity then is, does not change the fact that these acts are always criminal and always prosecutable. Anyway, that winds up our discussion for today. I'll see you next Monday.